The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. We have gathered here in order to encounter the living God. Eleven years ago, I uh, had just graduated with my Ph.D., just finished a season of pastoral ministry, and I was sitting in a restaurant with a known pastor, just sharing with him how much I was loving the glory of God. He turned to his assistant at one point and said, give me some reflections. And this, this man, he just said one sentence, one sentence 11 years ago that, that changed my life. He said, I hear a lot about God's glory, and I hear very little about Jesus. I had gone to school to study the Old Testament, Jesus' Bible. It's all that he had. He didn't have Matthew yet. He didn't have Romans. He didn't have Peter. He didn't get to learn about the end from Revelation. Jesus had the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings. That was it. And he said, it's about me. And yet, I had never had models that showed me how to treasure Christ and nurture hope in the gospel from the initial three-fourths of the Christian scripture. So for the last 11 years, that, that honestly has been my passion. And I don't feel like I'm there yet. But as far as I've come, I want to guide you over this week. It's such a privilege to be with you. I just love being with believers that cherish Jesus, that hold high the word of God, that view it as our highest authority. We want to be a people that are under the book and behind the Lord, just following him where he leads and underneath his authority in all things. And Jesus is in the Old Testament. Jesus is in the New Testament. And he is a Jesus who is passionate to preserve and display his own glory in our lives. So it's my prayer, my prayer that over the next 12 hours, all of us would enjoy tasting and seeing the goodness of God in the face of Christ. That the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ would shine down and fill up these mere jars of clay in order that we might have something to pour out that doesn't bring us glory, but brings him great renown. That's my prayer. So, Pastor Peter already prayed, but let me pray again, and then we will dive in with our Bibles open. Father, there was fresh mercy purchased for us for this moment. So I don't want to rely on past grace. Right now, all of us are asking for a fresh dose of blood-bought, love-wrought mercy. We are needy people. We need more of Jesus. We need him to overcome the selfishness of our souls, the bitterness of our hearts. When anxieties and fears fill us, we just need 
We need him to come in and remind us how big he is, how beautiful he is, that his promises are worth believing, that his commandments are worth following. Because there's so many other things pulling us. So I, I pray that you would let distractions flee, that even now, where we have burdens and cares, that we'd be able to cast them upon you, knowing that you are able, all authority, in heaven and on earth, working for us right now. You know our name. It's amazing that you who control all care for the small, and you are here working justice for us, even now. I can't produce greater glimpses of you. Your spirit has to open eyes. And so I I ask, all of us ask with open hands and open hearts saying, we're needy, fill us up, that you may be glorified, that you might use us in our own workplaces, on the mission field, in our schools, in our businesses, in our homes. We need to be more like you. We need to image you in increasing measure and you alone can make it happen. So make it happen in us. May we not leave, even tonight, the same people that we were when we entered in. Give us greater glimpses of you from your word and may it change us. May it fire us up and fuel mission. Please, come. For the glory of your son, I pray. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Romans. I hear you've been there for a little while. And I just want to look at how Paul starts his letter. God's mission to magnify the Messiah. God's mission to magnify the Messiah. This is not just a New Testament reality. This is God's purpose from the beginning of time. Romans thir- Revelation 13.8 Those whose names were written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God had a mission to bring a Messiah who would redeem a people to make much of Him. Let's just look at this text. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Right off the bat, the gospel's messenger is clarified. He's a servant of, not Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Paul prefers to use Jesus Christ, but here he seems to throw right up front that Old Testament hope term in front of Jesus. It's Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. That's who Paul is. And the servant here, I, I think it's, it's priestly service. It's, it's growing out of the key servant who suffered in Isaiah 53. Up until Isaiah 53, from Isaiah 40 up to Isaiah 53, the term servant shows up 20 times and it's always in the singular. And then in Isaiah 53, when Christ substitutionary atonement is anticipated, servant shows up 11 more times in the book, and it's always in the plural. The servant, when he does his work at the cross, produces servants who then carry on his mission. And Paul, I believe, sees himself as one of them. He sees himself fulfilling Old Testament anticipation. Well, how about the gospel's source and content? Look with me. 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for not just the gospel, it's the gospel of God. So there's question, is this the gospel that comes from God or the gospel, the good news that finds its essence in God? In the Old Testament, where we find the term gospel show up first, looking ahead to the future, is in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 hopes for the good news day to be proclaimed. Judgment, judgment. Then we hear Handel's tenor solo, comfort ye, my people. Get up on a high mountain, you herald of gospel. Herald of good news. We see it again in Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. That's how we have it in, our, in the NIV. I haven't looked at the new NIV to see if it changes it. But actually in Isaiah, it's how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. The very one who would suffer and die in the very next chapter is the one who's bringing good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's set me apart to proclaim good news. But then Paul, in Romans 10 looks back and he cites that good news text that I think originally anticipated the work of the Messiah and then Paul applies it to the church. All who are in that Jesus carry on the mission of this Jesus proclaiming good news, good news, good news. And the good news is, is about God. It's the good news of God that finds its source in God or that proclaims how lovely are the mountains and the feet of those uh, are the feet of him who brings good news, proclaiming peace, proclaiming news of happiness, declaring this, quotation marks, our God reigns. If he does not reign over all, we have no hope for peace, no hope for help, no hope for forgiveness. But because he reigns, Because this gospel is indeed about him, first and foremost, the God who reigns over all things, we have hope. It's history. It's the gospel of God, and then it says, that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Spirit. Scriptures. Have you thought about that? That the gospel we celebrate today was actually foretold in the Old Testament, that we can encounter good news anticipated in the Old Testament. Specifically, the ones who gave it to us were the prophets. Promised by the prophets through the Old Testament Scripture. And what was its focus? Concerning his son. It's the gospel of God concerning the son of God. God the son of the eternal trinity becomes the son of God of redemptive history. The story of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. He enters into space and time. And Paul says the Old Testament proclaims this good news concerning the son. So as I, as an Old Testament reader, I want to open up my Bible and say, where is he? 
Can I find him there? Can I meet him there? Paul was meeting him there. He wasn't preaching Jesus from the Gospels. He was preaching Jesus from the law and the prophets and convincing Jews that Jesus was indeed the Christ that was anticipated. Its focus is the Son. Well, how about its aim? Look with me. He was declared to be the Son of God in power So, concerning the Son, now we get a parenthesis. Who is he? He's one who is grounded in space and time, in history, in Israel's history, descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection. He was the Son of God before he came to earth. He comes to earth as the Son of God, but he wasn't the Son of God in the sense that he was already David's, uh, the son that David anticipated would sit on the throne forever. He was heir to that throne, but he did not sit onto that throne until his resurrection. It was at that time that he was able to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It was at that time, after he had obeyed, even to the point of death, death on the cross, that God now, now, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. It was at that point that his status shifts from heir to the throne to man on the throne. He is the son of God in power, the same power that Paul says is bound up in the gospel and he's not ashamed to preach in verse 16. That power is evident because Jesus conquered death. He conquered sin. And what that means is that any struggle you and I are having, anxiety, bitterness, worry, doubt, fear, any form of temptation, any form of brokenness, overcoming lust, the power is available because the one who controls all things, is now here working for us on our behalf. You'll hear me say this again, but the only sins that we can conquer in our lives are the sins that have already been forgiven. We don't enter in in our own power. We need 100% of God working for us before we ever start pursuing holiness. We need power working for us in Jesus Power that comes through blood-bought pardon. Power that comes through blood-bought promises. That's what we need in order to face the struggles that we face every single day. And to have confidence that in Him and in Him alone can we become people that we can't be on our own. The Son of God in power. So what's its aim? Look at how it's worded. Through this Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Paul gets called by God to be a gospel-centered man for the sake of the name. There is no higher end than the name of Jesus. All that we do, all that we are, all that we think, all that we breathe, all that we say is supposed to be for his ultimate end. Whether we eat, Whether we drink frosted flakes, orange juice, for the glory of God. I'm trying as a dad to teach my kids that if if we can't pick someone up and slam their head into the ground for the glory of God, 
then we shouldn't have football. And I shouldn't delight in it. But if I can understand how it can be played for his glory, how it could be watched for his glory, then all of a sudden there is something that I can enter into that has cosmic dimensions to it. Every part of life is supposed to be lived with this kind of passion, this kind of vision, the small and the big, for the sake of his name. The aim of the gospel. So, I mean, right off the bat, its messenger, its source, its content, its history, its focus, its aim. And Paul got that from the Old Testament. So, seeing as it's the story of God, and three-fourths of that story is Old Testament, that's going to control a fair amount of our time over the next two days as we walk through this story. And then on Friday, we're going to go back over the story and look at one theme and look and see how it, from the beginning to the end, how we can just trace this single theme. The first two days, tonight and tomorrow night, it's kind of a big, big picture And then Friday night, one theme from beginning to end. Trace it all the way through. And then we're going to step back and just ask a very practical question. Practical in the sense that I want you to be reading your Bibles and applying your Bibles for the glory of Jesus. And three-fourths of the Bible is Old Testament. And back there, there's 613 laws That's old covenant material, not new covenant material. And we have to ask ourselves as Christians, what am I supposed to do when I come to the extended unit of Leviticus? It's Leviticus again, and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, so I can just, you know, 40 chapters in a day of devotions. It was a great day. And yet, were we edified? How am I supposed to read Deuteronomy for the glory of Christ? And find my heart, encounter the living God. How does it point to Jesus? What does it mean for me? What do I do with the fact that, first of all, first of all, Jesus says, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He didn't make it up. He got it from Moses in Deuteronomy 6.5. Well, okay, so you think Moses still matters? And then Moses, back in Deuteronomy 30, verse 8, just two verses after the circumcision of the heart promise, you know that one, I will in that future day circumcise your hearts and so that you will love me with all? Two verses later it says, and in that day you will turn to me and you will keep all the commandments that I am commanding you this day. The same day... When God circumcises hearts, and Paul says in Romans 2, that's today. When God's doing heart surgery as a great physician, entering into a bunch of sick people who are desperately needy, and fixing us, not perfectly overnight, but progressively over a lifetime, increasingly into his image, in that day, Moses thought Deuteronomy would still matter. But how? When we know that Jesus has changed Everything. Not just some things, everything. So that's how I want to end. Second half of Friday evening and Saturday morning, we're just going to focus on the Christian and Old Testament law and see if we can gain some good guidelines.
that are Christ-honoring that you can see in the text for how to appropriate the law faithfully without ever living under the law. So that's where I'm headed. This is what I want. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So let's see if we can find him. If you were to go to Jesus and say, what was your Bible about? I mean, if you're the climax of history, what was your Bible about? What would he say? Me? Well, that's pretty, yes, I think that's right. Me. If you believed Moses, Pharisees, then you'd believe me. Why? Because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you then believe my words? Now, many Christians don't want to look at Moses. They just want to look at Jesus' words. But I would just say, do you want to know all that there is about Jesus? How hungry are you? And he would say, you're going to find a lot about me back there in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses' books. He wrote about me. I want to find him there. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He's died. He hasn't, the the people he's walking with don't know that he's risen. And he's just saying, didn't you read your Bible? This shouldn't have come out of the blue to you. Are you telling me that we can see portraits of Jesus' suffering in the Old Testament and that it should have readied people for such things? Yes. Listen how Jesus talks. I did not come to abolish the law. No. Don't think that was my purpose. I'm not here to do away with the law and the prophets. That means that Christian scripture still needs them. Or we're not heeding what Jesus said. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. We have foundation in the Old Testament. We have fulfillment in the New. But the reality is I won't appreciate all the fulfillment without an understanding of the foundation. These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is what I'm here to do, to fulfill. And that means that the Old Testament is filled with anticipation. And that when you and I are reading the Old Testament, it shouldn't bog us down. It should heighten hope. Because not everything that Jesus set out to do has been fully seen in space and time. He came once, he will come again. And we can heighten hope, kingdom hope, that can pull us through deep trial, pull us through suffering, by letting our minds be bathed in the anticipation of the Old Testament saints. 
Now, Jesus could have said, oh yeah, all that Old Testament, it's centered on me. I was the focus of everything that it was about. But there was also a frame. And that frame was the kingdom of God. Here's how Jesus talked. I must preach the good news of the kingdom. It's not just good news. Jesus said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Apart from lordship, like I already said, there's no good news. There's lots of people in the world who don't accept the peace, the freedom, the grace, the joy, the hope that Jesus secures. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus reigns. But if you take away Jesus reigning, if he really didn't conquer death, if he didn't conquer fear, if he didn't conquer lust, if he didn't conquer bitterness, then you and I have no hope and there is no good news. We can proclaim All we want, but it's just happy talk that has no essence and will have no future. The kingdom of God is the hinge of the good news. It is indeed the good news of the kingdom. Our hope is that Jesus reigns over all of my pain, over all of my problems, over all of my indecency, over all of my waywardness. When I enter into a hospital room, I think about it, the first time I was, as a pastor, called into a hospital room and Elizabeth was in the bed and her mom, Lisa, was standing there. Elizabeth was a 21-year-old with leukemia facing her first chemo treatment. And Lisa just said, Pastor Jason, what does God want from me right now? She was broken. What does God want from me as a mom? As a woman, I just, I don't feel like I have anything else to give. My tears are empty. They're not, they don't flow anymore. My heart has ached and ached. What does God want from me? We need to be able to enter into such a context, whether it's somebody else's pain or our own pain, with an absolute confidence that even though I don't understand, God was on the throne before the cancer came, and he is still on the throne today. We don't hold to a dualism where there is God on one side and Satan on the other. No, even though we don't understand all the mysteries, we have a confidence in light of how the Bible teaches that we have a sovereign God who is over all things. By him, through him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Like what? The thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against them. And they're the very things that Jesus disarmed at the cross. So Satan is like a dog on a leash. And we have to be a people that enter into deep suffering, that are willing to take radical risk. Why? Because our God is big and he is for us. I will not fear those who can kill only the body. I will fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. An absolute confidence that God is indeed on the throne, that he reigns, and that in Jesus he is for me and not against me. And therefore, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the kind of of belief we need to pass on to to, to our loved ones. 
that we need to pass on in our small groups, pass on in our Sunday school classes. To not be caught off guard. Jesus said, in this world you will face tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Good news of the kingdom. This is why I was sent. Do you see that? He was sent to be a kingdom of God preacher. All the Old Testament from creation, building, building, building. I've come to fulfill it. Well, what are you going to do in order to fulfill it? I'm going to proclaim that God reigns over everything. Over every star and over every subatomic particle. Everything. God is over it. He is not small. He controls all things. And in that, we have a message to give. A message of hope if you can get on his right side by surrendering to his son. Now, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, proclaimed the kingdom. Well, what did he do in the 40 days after he rose from the dead? This is what it says in Acts 1.3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here's how I define the kingdom. It's... It can be defined in various ways depending on what text we're looking at. But generally stated, it's God's reign over God's people in God's land for God's glory. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through Jesus, the kingdom of God. It's about his reign. It's about a reign over a people in a place. There's God There's people and there's land. And from the beginning, the entire story of Scripture hinges not just on this relationship, but on a a God and a people in a place. And because the context is important in order to maintain the relationship, caring for that context becomes massively important. Love of neighbor includes care for creation, not for creation's sake, but in order to maintain a context wherein the image of God in you and me can be carried on into the next generation. Land was a key part of the garden story. It's a key part of the Israel in the promised land story. And the new earth will carry us on for eternity. Not an eternal spiritual existence only but real bodies where, like Jesus in his resurrection body, could eat fish and chips. Today, for supper, I got good southern fried catfish, and it was good. And according to Ezekiel 47, the Dead Sea will be transformed in this vision of the future. And who's surrounding the Dead Sea? Fishermen. I like that. I like that vision. Fish and chips while I get to fish with Jesus. And in that time, all of my eyesight will be clear. I will be able to see beauty for what it is, always for the glory of God. Every sunrise, every mountainscape, every beautiful image of Lake Superior, every delight of my children, however that's going to work, children, I'll have an 
I, I think I'll, I'll understand their identity. But there will be no more marriage up there. I, I don't understand how it all works. But I do know it will be better than here. It's kind of like how Jack Lewis image in the last book of Narnia. You just go deeper in and higher up and you keep looking back and saying, that looks familiar, but, but that's like a shadow of, of this. It's just getting more and more clear, more and more beautiful. And at never, never will our hearts be fully, completely contented. We'll continue to long for more and every mountain peak will have a beautiful vista, but then we'll see a higher, higher elevation more to climb, more glories to see and delight in our God, in his world and in his people. His kingdom will be forever. Now, look at the last text, Acts 1-3. Jesus rises from the dead and in that small window of 40 days, he's teaching. What's he teaching about? What does it say? Kingdom of God. Now, when you go back to Luke's other book, remember Luke wrote the book of Acts. In fact, he begins the book of Acts by saying, O Theophilus, you know what I wrote to you in my former book. Of all that Jesus began to do, and to teach. Remember that? Acts 1 1. So, what's the former book? Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke takes us from the birth of Jesus up all the way to his ascension when he goes up to sit on the throne next to the Father. From Jesus' birth to his ascension is what Jesus began to do and to teach. What does that make the book of Acts? What Jesus continues to do and to teach by his spirit through his church. In fact, in Acts 16, I think it's Acts 16 verse 8, Paul actually says, calls the spirit that plays a big role in the whole book of Acts, the spirit of Christ. Now here's Jesus proclaiming kingdom of God, kingdom of God in those 40 days. Now, if you go back to the book of Luke and you see what Jesus was teaching after his ascension, it never mentions the kingdom of God. So what I want to do is get inside the kingdom of God. How would Jesus define what he's teaching about? Because in the book of Luke, he tells us. Here's Luke 24. Thus it is written. What is Jesus saying when he's proclaiming the kingdom of God? Thus it is written that the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name, in his name, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What do you mean the kingdom of God? Well, I'm talking about that the Christ would suffer, that the Messiah would suffer, and that missions would be sparked in light of his victory. Now remember, this is what the Old Testament is about. Just before this, 
he said, it says, so it was that he opened up the scriptures, opened up their minds to understand the scripture. Thus it is written. His scripture? Well, in the very previous verse to that, he says, I've come in order to fulfill all that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms said would come to pass. That's Old Testament. He's come to fulfill it. And then he says, let me unpack for you what it was saying. You want to understand the scriptures? Here's the two things you need to be thinking about. The Messiah and missions. You see that? Thus it is written. You want to understand what the Old Testament says? It is a book that proclaims, not just many books, one book with one author, with one purpose, proclaiming that the Christ would suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to the end of the age. When you read the Old Testament, is that what you find? Do you find a testimony of the Messiah and missions? That's what I want to unpack. A message about the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom that was proclaimed first by the prophets concerning the Son who is descended from David in the flesh but who is declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection of, from the dead. The kingdom of God, not simply concerning the Son, specifically concerning the suffering and the resurrection of that Son and the missions that the Messiah would spark. That's how Jesus thought about the kingdom. It's how Jesus understood his Old Testament. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now if you were to ask Paul, I'm getting a sense for what Jesus thought the Old Testament was about. What do you think it was about? Look at these texts. Here's Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. He ministered with them for two whole years. What was he proclaiming? And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. What? Okay, he was a kingdom preacher. That's what he taught them, the kingdom of God. And he only had the Old Testament. Proclaiming the kingdom, you'll never see my face again, but be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then Acts 28. From morning until evening, he's in Rome... What was he doing? This is the end of Acts. So Acts 1.3, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. You know what, I, what Jesus began to do and to teach back there. Now Jesus is continuing to do and to teach through his apostles, by the power of his spirit working in them, expanding from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God is expanding, filling the globe. And Paul is part of that mission. And so he picks up right where Jesus in the flesh left off. What is he doing? Proclaiming kingdom. Kingdom. God reigns. That's your only hope. That God reigns. All of your problems overcome because God reigns. Your marital struggles. He reigns. Can you trust that he could be big enough to heal your pain? And if your marriage is going to find recovery, he alone is able He reigns. 
So here's how he's talking. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. He's using his Bible, focused on Jesus, kingdom of God. Well, if you were to back up and say, Paul, tell me what you think the kingdom of God is about. Look at this text. I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing, Festus. I don't say to you anything but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. One, that the Messiah must suffer and that two, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Messiah and missions. That's what the law of Moses and the prophets said would come to pass. The Messiah and missions. The kingdom of God. So I'm just trying to use the signals that I'm getting from the New Testament to give me clarity as to what kinds of things I should be looking for as a New Covenant believer, as a Christian, when I read my Old Testament. It should fire me up in hope for a Jesus who will finally come and overcome all the evil in this world. He will do it through his deep suffering and victory and resurrection. And from that will be sparked a global mission of proclamation of good news. Now, the test will be, can we find it? Is it right there? Have I just missed it? I mean, the Old Testament is big. And because of that, it can be intimidating. It can be daunting to know where to find ourselves. We could sit up here and fill an entire screen with just the events and the peoples that you remember from stories that you've gained. And the question is, how do they all fit together in the purpose of God? The Lord helped me as I was wrestling. God, I just want to communicate your kingdom story. How could I communicate it? What could I use? And years ago, the Lord gave me just something simple. This is not bound by any system. You could have different theological systems for understanding how the whole Bible relates and totally embrace what I'm about to give you because all we're doing is looking at the basic steps of the story. And, well, let, let me just start. Here's the basic story of God. This is what he's given us right here in his book. This is, this is what he just lays it out for us. From Genesis to Revelation, here's the picture. And, I'm, and we're going to unpack it in detail in the coming hours. Every good sport starts with a kickoff. I'm just kidding. So you may like American football, or you might like global football, soccer. Both of them start with a kickoff. Kickoff and rebellion. This is creation, fall, flood. K. Think kingdom. What I want you to do is be able to leave here and remember the story and never forget it. To just package what comes first, what was the order, and then all the peoples, all the events, all the institutions, like Passover and the temple. I I want a place to fit them. I want to a spot to hang them in my brain when it comes to just unpacking the story of God. It's his story. 
History is his story. That's what we're here to look at, to get our hands around. He is the great mover. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is... He's kind of like Jack Lewis in that everything that's happening in the Chronicles is because Jack put it there. Everything. Every character, every activity, every death. It's all there because the author put it there. And if the author was to write himself into the story, what would it look like? Kick off in rebellion, creation, fall, flood. I, instrument of blessing. This is the age of the patriarchs. We're going to unpack all of this. N, nation, redeemed, and commissioned. So you know we start in creation. There's lots and lots of sin. It climaxes in the Tower of Babel. Seventy families, God picks one of them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through them, the world will be blessed. They end up through Joseph in Egypt, lots of oppression, and then God redeems them. Not only that, he takes them from the Exodus to Sinai and commissions them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Nation redeemed and commissioned, but there's more sin, 40 years in the wilderness. Then God raises them up, government in the land, conquest and kingdoms. They simply move in to the land. First under Joshua, there's 12 tribal league. Then those 12 tribes unite themselves underneath a king. There's a united monarchy, Saul, David, Solomon, and then a divided monarchy. 20 um, kings in the north from 10 different dynasties, 20 kings in the south from one dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. The northern kingdom's called Israel, southern kingdom's called Judah. 723, Assyria destroys the northern kingdom because of sin. That's God's interpretation. Then in 586, Babylon comes and destroys the southern kingdom. The result, dispersion and return. Dispersion is a fancy word for exile. And then return is the initial restoration. But it's not all that they were hoping for. All that they were longing for. A king on the throne forever. The presence of God returning. All evil and all enemies put down. People with changed hearts living for God, hungering for God, following God, loving their neighbor, loving the broken. It wasn't happening. And the Old Testament comes to an end. Demanding a sequel. It's kind of like what I felt like after the first Hobbit movie. And all you saw was an eye of a dragon. And you're like, I've got to wait 12 more months before I can actually see him? It demands a sequel. It's, it's calling you for more. And the sequel that you're longing for at the end of the Old Testament, after centuries and centuries of death, Paul said the Old Testament, Old Covenant rather, bore a ministry of condemnation. And when you're reading the Old Testament, you end up feeling the weight, feeling the death, feeling what happens when law is given to hearts that are hard. It kills them. 
And all of that darkness, 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 getting deeper and deeper so that when the light came, he might be as bright and beautiful as he could be. And we turn the last page of the Old Testament and what does it say? This is the generation, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Just drawing in all of that Old Testament expectation. The first guys show up. Who are they looking for? The king of the Jews. And the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, make disciples, fulfill all that the Old Testament was longing for. I am the Messiah, carry out my mission. Dispersion and return. O is overlap of the ages. We'll talk about this, but what I'm talking about is there's an old creation in Adam that is filled with sin and death. And it continues to this day. But what Jesus does is he brings the future into the present in an overlap of the ages. His first appearing enters into the old age while the old age is still going on. Bringing hope and help to those who are bound in sin and yet not completely fixing all the problems yet until his second appearing. And when he comes again, the mission will be accomplished. Christ's return and kingdom consummation. Kickoff and rebellion. Instrument of blessing. Nation redeemed and commissioned. Government in the land. Dispersion and return. Overlap of the ages. Mission accomplished. I'm just going to, because I don't have it up here, I'm just going to see what we have. Okay. So every one of my sessions is around 30 minutes. This one may have been a little bit longer, introduction. And then after those 30 minutes, I just want to pause and raise the opportunity for questions and reflections. So please, let me just, I'll pause right here. And any, any questions as we gear up to enter into the story? Okay, I anticipate questions will rise. Old Testament foundation, New Testament fulfillment. That's what we're looking at. Now, along with a kingdom acronym, the Lord gave me these pictures. I worked hard to try to just make them simple. My six-year-old children know the pictures and they can tell you the story. Not only that, these images have now been used by to every tribe in Papua New Guinea to completely oral cultures who do not yet know how to read. And the story of God is being proclaimed there. Three weeks ago, I was in Ethiopia ministering to 60 church leaders, proclaiming to them the story of God through pictures. The pictures are not enough. You have to match the pictures with the word. And so the Bible is open and we're just walking through. But the pictures can help remember. And if you're, by chance, for example, um, 
a preschool teacher, an elementary school ministry leader here in the church, or if you're a college leader or an adult leader, you might find the images helpful. So we're going to walk through these images, but you start out with a tree. What do you think that is about? Paradise? How about the apple? Don't look at, you're, you're, some of you are looking at the answers. Don't look at the answers. Okay, so the apple, sin. A circle with a line through it is my depiction of you're out of here, exile. And then waters of judgment. So we'll, the flood. So then we come to, after the waters of judgment, 70 families are spread out. It climaxes Ham, Shem, Japheth. And Tower of Babel, 70 families spread out from this period. And one of them is Abraham. Through you, Abraham, the world would be blessed. We're going to see that God does not raise up the world for Israel. God raises up Israel for the sake of the world. They are going to be the channel or the instrument of blessing. Curse occurs five times. That word occurs, occurs five times in Genesis 1 through 11. It occurs, the word blessing shows up five times in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I think intentionally designed to overcome the curse. And it's all going to happen through this one man and his offspring. The images with empty rather than filled in pictures are words of promise rather than fulfillment. So the promise of offspring like the stars in the sky, a promise of a homeland, and a promise that through you, the north, south, east, and west, the blessing of God will reach to the ends of the earth. That's what God promises Abraham. With Israel in Egypt, the offspring promise begins to be fulfilled. We're going to see in Exodus 1-7, in five different ways, it tells us that God begins to multiply them. Expanding, growing an image of the ultimate offspring. The waters of judgment come up again, but this time they part. Instead of using a boat to protect his remnant, he simply parts them, and Israel goes three while the waters of judgment crash on the enemy. He leads them to Sinai. He gives them the law, calling them. In this law is bound up a picture of my character. If you can get this law on your heart, I will be displayed to the world. But the law ends up remaining on tablets of stone and stuck in a box where no one can read it in the Holy of Holies. It never reaches the heart. So that Jeremiah 17.1 actually says, what's inscribed in the tablet of your heart is sin. But then Jeremiah 30.1 comes. Jeremiah 17.1, I will write my law on your heart. There's a, a change that's anticipated. In the midst of the law being given to Israel, God raises up an opportunity for atonement. How can a holy God meet with sinners? It's only going to be through a substitute. His wrath will come out on the sinner or on the substitute. And he says, this can be the substitute. But Israel doesn't repent and they continue to sin greatly. Conquest. They enter in with the kingdom banner. Yahweh is on the throne. 
And he's chosen this place to be his sacred space. So it needs to be cleaned up. The promised land we'll see as a picture of the Garden of Eden. Israel is called to do and to be what Adam was called to do and to be. But instead, Israel ends up being what Adam was. And just as Adam is kicked out of his paradise, Israel will be kicked out of theirs. But it's an initial homeland. It's a picture of paradise, and it's an it's initial fulfillment of the homeland promise, but Israel continues to sin. So they're exiled, just like Adam was. Some of them come back, but Malachi ends with a picture of sin. They're still not changed. The Old Testament comes to a close. Hope, hope, overlap of the ages. Christ comes, fulfills the offspring. He is the ultimate lamb that was slain. And now all of a sudden he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And it begins to expand from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's the kingdom of God that is taking over the globe so that the glory of God can fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. And God is working and doing it even now. We begin to see the blessing of God reach all the nations and God begins to take the offspring. If you're identified with the single star, you become one of the stars. The light of the world, we become identified with him and we become the offspring of Abraham. And then mission accomplished Kingdom completed, not waters of judgment, but fires of judgment. The blessing of God is gone to the north, south, east, and west. The offspring is completely fulfilled. Paradise forever, home at last. The story of God. And we're going to walk through with our Bibles open, or at least the Bible on the screen if you can keep up, and see the story unpacked. Let me pause one more time. Any questions at all? All right. We'll take a break in 30 minutes. So we're going to look at K. Kickoff and rebellion. Now you're going to have a quiz in a little bit, so try to get this in your mind. Kickoff and rebellion. I really liked it in the point of my own journey when I stopped taking quizzes, and started giving them. <laughs> so here we go. Kickoff and rebellion. For every one of these, and you'll see it on your handout, so we're moving now to the actual formal part of the notebook. For every one, what I've tried to do, every one of the seven stages, if I had to pick one passage that I would go to in order to teach this stage, if I didn't have time to go everywhere else, what one passage would I use as my springboard into teaching this part of the story? And that one passage is Genesis 1, 27 through 28. We'll look at it in detail in a second because I'm going to use more than one passage in this teaching time. God the creator, worthy of highest praise. Just look at how these passages talk. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Wow, power, glory, victory, majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. 
The highest praise goes to the one who owns it, who made it, who controls it. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that right now, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. He's upholding them. And if he stops speaking, we will stop existing. That's how big our God is. And because of that, he is worthy of highest praise. As creator of all, he is worthy of our lives. Trying to understand practically what it means. How do I, how do I teach or cheer on my wife to teach our kids how to read? For the glory of God. What does that look like? How to do geometry for the glory of God? How do I balance budgets? Hire and fire. Mow the lawn for the glory of God. How do I choose what clothes I'm going to wear when I go to my closet? Or enjoy a hot fudge Sunday, Or take a walk hand in hand with my wife for the glory of God. God created all and he deserves us to think about it. To ponder, how do I live practically, knowing that I can't have my mind 100% of the time on God, how do I live in a way that honors him and doesn't defame his name, in a way that's practical and doesn't, I mean, that I can actually live in the world and people are attracted to me rather than turned away from me, that they can see my good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. How, do, how does that happen practically? So here's where we're at. Paradise. I don't know if you can read that. This is something that I I saw one time in reading Genesis. When I read things that are so familiar, I just pray, God, I, I pause right now and I just ask that you would let me see something that I have never seen before. Open up my eyes to behold something that is beautiful, something that is marvelous, something that is small or something that is large that I've never seen before. Have you ever noted, so so up on the screen, it's not just a screen of black. There's actually orange words up there. Maybe you can see them a little better if I do this. Or how about that? 35 uses of God. 35. It's a multiple of seven in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, the creation week. Now, what's so striking about this is that when we read the text, it doesn't read like any other text in the Old Testament or in the New. There's no other text that I found that does what Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 does. Pastor Peter says, we're glad to have Jason here. He's this and that. 
and he's such and such. Three sentences, but only one explicit subject. Jason. Jason this, and then he, he, he. It's how we do it in English. It's how they do it in the Hebrew Bible. Pronouns work. Until you introduce a new subject into the text, you don't need to tell us his name again and again and again. Jason is my dad. Jason walked up on the stage. Jason began to teach the people. Jason, Jason, Jason. I would imagine it would get a little old for you. But this text, notice, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There's a poetic parallelism and that's the first time that we haven't seen the explicit repetition. But as soon as we leave the, leave the poetic parallelism, there was evening and there was morning, and God said, let there be an expanse, and God made the expanse, and God called the expanse, and God said, and God called, and God saw, and God said, and God saw, and God said, and God made, and God said, and God saw. Do you get the point? God, 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 God. If you see the stars, think God. If you enjoy the watermelon, think God. If you catch the salmon, think God. If you identify the moose, think God. It's not just that everything comes from him. This text, the way that it's set up, it's, it's designed to say, if you're living in this world and delighting in this world, then you should be thinking about God. It's not only coming from him, it's designed to point us back to him. Every hot fudge Sunday, every pizza, God. It's not just he did it. It's God did it. God did it. God did it. This is shaping a worldview. Think about what we have here. I am very confident Israel did not open up Genesis 1, first and foremost, thinking about Science or origins? No, life and death was at stake. They've been in the wilderness seeing their grandma die, their aunt and uncle die, their brother die. Why? Because of sin. I wonder if God's going to lead us around the corner where mom and dad are buried. I don't know. They were a walking mortuary for 40 years, 38 years, actually. Not wandering, no, waiting on God and then following God. Waiting on God, waiting on His presence to lift up. And when it finally lifted up, they knew, now we go. Why? Because they didn't know how to wait. They didn't know how to follow. That's what got them into the problem. The story of Scripture actually starts in Genesis 2, verse 4. When we get to Genesis 2, verse 4, Adam and Eve are not on the scene yet. There's no man. There's no woman. But the story begins in Genesis 2-4 by God creating man and then creating a garden and putting the man into that garden. And that story carries on all the way to Revelation 22. 
So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is fronted in our scriptures like an introduction, like a preface, like a worldview orientation to a people are longing, how do I live and not die like all those who are around me? And to these people, God gives Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. It's the first word in their scripture. And what they're getting is God, 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 God. It'll change the way we live. It'll change the way you think. And believe me, it will provide an antidote to the brokenness of your life. I didn't say it will take away all the brokenness. It will give you what you need to make it. Because He is the upholder. He is the helper. He's the only Savior and the only Redeemer. The only one who truly knows the depth of my pain and cares all the way to the core. And who will never leave me and never forsake me. God. Into this God, 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 there's a climax. We don't see it. What Are you guys all using ESVs? NIVs? NASBs? If you anybody have a New American Standard on them? Okay, there's one over there. Everybody else in here who doesn't have a New American Standard won't see this. And I don't know why the translators didn't do it. But the New American Standard actually has it. All the rest of you say the first day, the second day, the third day, not the New American Standard. And the New American Standard actually has it aligned just with what is in the Hebrew text. In the Hebrew text it says a first day, a second day, a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day, the sixth day. Only at day six do we get a definite article. It's just drawing attention there. It's only after day six, after mankind is made, that we finally hear not just, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Very good. There's something about day six. It's, it's where we find the longest speeches of God, and it's where you and I find ourselves. And the Bible wasn't written for, for my two cats. Barney and Moses. It wasn't written for them. It was written for us. So we find ourselves. We come into the text and all of a sudden this is what we read. So God created man in his image. In the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And subdue it. You and I are trying to gain clarity as to how we live and don't die. We find ourselves in the text and all of a sudden the spotlight is immediately taken off of us and put it back on him. It's not that we are the image of God. It's that we're the image of God. That the very purpose of our existence is to put him on display. The point of an image is not in and of itself, it's what it's pointing to. that we are supposed to be magnifiers of the greatness of God. I once heard John Piper say, in magnifying God, it's not like we're a bunch of microscopes taking what is tiny and making it bigger than it is. God is not tiny. 
The world can't see him, but it's not because he's tiny. It's because they're blind. It's because they're too far away from him. So what we need to do is be not microscopes, but telescopes. Who, in our lives, when people look through us, what they do is they see like the beauty of a distant moon, which was all big, all glorious, but we couldn't see it. And so what the telescope does is it brings that glory and that beauty into greater focus. We can now enjoy it better. Why? Because people are seeing the character of God etched into our lives. They're seeing his worth displayed in our suffering. I value God enough and I will continue to fear him, not because of what he gives or takes away, but because of who he is, period. And we put God on display living that way by valuing ethical living, by valuing care for our spouse and respect of our children, by not living as if this is our kingdom, but recognizing always it's his. And we don't get it perfectly. It's why we continue to need so much more grace, blood-bought grace. But when we fall, we fall toward the cross and not away from it. And we magnify Jesus over and over again. I define imageness as reflecting, resembling, and representing. Reflecting, resembling, and representing. We'll talk more about that on Friday. Reflecting, resembling, representing God. Now notice something in this text. God blessed them and God said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves. The goal is not just to get people all over the globe. I don't think that the Tower of Babel fulfilled this commission. I honestly do not. Because the goal was not to get people, it was to get the image of God all over the globe. It says, God created them in His image, and then He blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, take me to the ends of the earth, that the whole world may know that there is a God. This is about His glory filling the earth as the waters cover the sea, that the Garden of Eden would be ever-expanding. God created a perfect world, but it was not complete. He didn't create the new earth. He created the original earth. And the vision here is that Adam and Eve were placed on mission to display the greatness of God, not just in the garden forever, but to see that garden paradise ever expanding, filling the earth, overcoming that which was still uninhabited and uninhabitable, increasing the presence of people who were surrendered to the living God. That was the commission given to Adam and Eve. As humans, they were called to put God on display. Number one chief purpose. What's striking here is that it says, God blessed them and God said, be fruitful. In Hebrew, if you want to clarify what is said, you add another verb in front of it. Another speech verb. In fact... 
Almost every single quotation in the Hebrew Bible has the verb of saying. So if you want to give clarity to the nature of the saying, you say, prayed and said, sang and said, screamed and said. Are you with me? I don't think God did two things here. He blessed them and then he said, be fruitful and multiply. No, the nature of the command is itself a blessing. Now remember, sinners are the ones who are reading this book. Adam and Eve were given the commission, but someone after them, maybe even them themselves writing it down initially, or Moses through special revelation, is given what happened at this point. And whenever it was written down, it was written down after the fall to a bunch of sinners who were struggling to put God on display because they're much more concerned with putting themselves on display. They're living under curse. What they need is the blessing of God. And I think this text is saying, for the image of God to fill the earth is going to take his blessing overcoming curse, that we are going to have to be a dependent people, not a self-reliant people to accomplish the task. Do you see that? We have to be a people dependent on God's blessing, longing for God's blessing, looking to him to accomplish in me what I can't do on my own. History's testified, and all of those reading this as scripture saw it already in their lives. They were living under the fall, under the curse, separated from God, seeing that he was not being displayed naturally in their hearts. And what they needed was the blessing of God to come. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what we need. That's what he has done. Well, here's what we have. Sin and exile. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It happened in that moment. You shall surely die. God drove out the man and and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim, the flaming sword, turning every way to guard the way back to the tree of life. Death here appears to be defined in two different ways. At this point, physically, his body begins to deteriorate. But on the very day that he sinned, exile happened. That death means to be separated from the life-giving presence of God. That's what death is. And that's the world we're all born into. You and I are born, our identity with Adam is not simply dispositional, it's locational. That is, he was separated out of the paradise of God. He was separated out of the holy of holies, if we could call it that. There's a separation now between where God walks and where the people are. They're born in darkness, and the curse has infected and affected everything and everyone. Separation has happened. That's death. And the death will only increase and grow over time. Jonathan Edwards, I don't know if you've ever read Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. We've heard about it. But if you read it, he talks about how hell is already in the hearts of every person who is born. It's a small flame. And all that eternal hell is, is that that small flame has grown and grown and grown as rebellion continues to be 
to happen unless that flame is quenched by the grace and mercy of, of blood-bought power, that flame will simply grow until it absolutely consumes us and it will be eternal damnation. The first Adam, through his disobedience, brought sin. And all have now sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners who sin. The fact that we're born separated from God with only one influence on our heart, it's called the flesh. The desires of the flesh versus the desires of the spirit. And until we are saved, all we have is the desires of the flesh. There's no other positive influence working in us. We will continue to resist the spirit of God until he chooses to overcome our resistance with the kind of voice that says, Lazarus, come forth to bring dead man into life. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. Sin. Exile. That's the story. What's amazing to me is that before Adam and Eve ever hear any word of punishment, before the punishment comes, God Judges the serpent, cursed are you more than any other beast of the field. On your belly you will walk, and of the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then it talks about this tension. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see that word, his third masculine singular pronoun. In Genesis 17 verse 9, Moses has no problem when talking about seed to use third masculine plural pronouns, them, their. The point being, when Moses wants to make the seed, and seed is one of those words, you can have a handful of seed or you can have one seed, right? It's not seeds, plural, it's just seed. That's the kind of word it is. So you need, it's an ambiguous term that could be either singular or plural based on the context unless there's other signals. The signal in this text is that we're talking about a male descendant who will crush the head of the serpent. He's already on the ground in the dust. He's the personification of evil. And the image is that he's going to go head to head with the woman. Not with the woman, with the offspring of the woman who will be a male deliverer, and he will strike the head of the serpent and in the process receive a blow to his own heel. But if the serpent's head is struck, that's a death blow. A heel is only partial paralysis. And there's an image here of the gospel. I I, I think it's in the text. I think Moses read this and anticipated the hope of the deliverer. And we're going to see it more in the book of Genesis. And this comes before Adam and Eve ever receive their judgment sentence. Before God ever tells us that the rest of the world is cursed and all the land is going to produce thorns and there's going to be pain in childbirth and friction in the marriage. Before any of that comes, he declares there's going to be a redeemer. Hope exists 
before the judgment ever comes. And that's unbelievable mercy for us reading this text. Right from the get-go, we're longing for the day when this individual male descendant of the woman will rise to overcome darkness. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Full stop. Have you guys gotten to chapter 8 yet in this round of Romans? Okay. Who subjected the world to futility in hope? Satan was certainly influential, right? He brings about the fall that brings in the curse. But did he subject the world to futility in hope? We're not talking about him then. What about Adam and Eve? Did they have the power in the midst of their sin to... I mean, they brought about the curse. It was their action that brings about the need for judgment. But did they subject the world to futility in hope? So who did? God. Why? Because God is holy and sin is serious. But He does not just come in to wipe out sinners. We have a God who gives mercy to rebels. While we were still sinners, He would send His Son to die in our stead that we could have life abundantly. So he subjects the world to futility and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. This suggests we're not just... New creation is not replacement of the old creation, but somehow a renewal of the original creation. Because this creation is longing for the day when it will be set free from all of its bondage. And what that suggests to me, even though I don't fully understand how it's all going to work out, but what it suggests to me is that when I'm seeing the world, I'm getting a taste of glory. That we are supposed to heighten our hope for the day when suffering will cease by looking at sunsets and sunrises, by looking at seascapes and mountainscapes, by delighting in forests and animals All of this creative activity of God that has been subjected to futility is itself crying out for the day when it too will be set free from its bondage. All because God set it up that way. He subjected it in hope. So Jesus has died not simply to save sinners, but it says in Colossians 1, to reconcile all things to God. All things. Questions? I don't think you're really this quiet all the time. But I do know that when Deroshi pushes play, it's hard to push pause. So let's take our break. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason Deroshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom 
and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies, through covenant, for His glory in Christ.